0: Mark chapter 14, beginning with verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priests to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water, follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared. There, make ready for him, for us. So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them and they prepared the Passover. In the evening, he came with the 12. Now, as they sat and ate, Jesus said, assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? He answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Amen. We'll end our reading there in Mark, 2, or Mark 14, 26. Let's ask God's help in prayer. Our gracious heavenly Father, We pray that as we come to a very solemn portion of your word, you would enable us to listen. You would enable us to take heed. You would enable us to receive from the Lord Jesus, as he's put before us in this passage, what we need for today, what we need in order to partake of the Lord's Supper appropriately with due humility and repentance for our sins, but also with confidence and joy in our forgiveness through Christ. But Lord, strengthen us not only for the supper, Strengthen us also for a whole week of service to our God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're not going to look at the whole passage that we read. I read a few verses ahead in light of the occasion that we do have the Lord's Supper, so it seemed appropriate to read the institution of the Lord's Supper from the Gospel of Mark, since we were right next to it. But what we're really looking at today is the preparation And the idea of preparation, of getting ready, is significant in this passage. Judas is getting ready to betray Jesus. He goes and he talks to the authorities who want to kill Jesus, and they're figuring out a plan. So Judas is preparing his betrayal. The disciples are concerned about where they're going to eat Passover. Passover had to be eaten within the boundaries. Of Jerusalem. And of course, this is a pretty big group. This is 13 people at least. And they're going to need space and they're going to need to have everything ready for the meal. And Jerusalem is crowded with many, many pilgrims. So it's not easy to find a place. They're concerned about their preparation for Passover. And the Lord Jesus is concerned about preparing his disciples for the shop for the horror, for the trauma that is coming when he's betrayed, when he's arrested, when he's condemned, when he's flogged and crucified, when he dies and is buried. So this passage is really about preparation. Everybody's preparing something. We're on the threshold of the crisis, so to speak. Now, you might remember after his teaching in the temple, The temple authorities were very perturbed with the Lord Jesus. If there was any lingering doubt as to whether it would be possible to work with him or not, those encounters in the temple have led them to conclude that it isn't. And so at the beginning of Mark 14, they are trying to figure out how to kill him, but their preliminary thought is they're going to wait until after the feast. They want the pilgrims to disperse. Because the more people you have, the more a (coughs) protest or a riot of some kind is likely. So they decide to wait until after the feast. And that would have given Jesus about eight days. Because you have Passover and then you have a seven-day feast of unleavened bread. So all told, you have eight days together of festival. But when Judas comes to them, when there's a betrayer in Jesus' inner circle... Now they see the opportunity to nab him secretly, to nab him when it's dark, when there's not a big crowd around, and to, quote-unquote, dispose of this problem before it comes to the light of day, to present the multitudes with something that's already accomplished rather than something that perhaps loyal pilgrims from Galilee would be able to prevent. Now when we read about Judas going to the chief priests, to betray Jesus of course it brings up a lot of questions for us we wonder about Jesus or we, excuse me we wonder about Judas's motivations we wonder what led to it and you can find sermons or articles that will try to psychoanalyze Judas and explain what happened we know he was the treasurer we know he was greedy for money we know that he asked the chief priests what they would give him from other gospel accounts but you know mark isn't really focused on that He just tells you Judas Iscariot, and he's identified as Iscariot, the man from Kerioth is what that means, to distinguish him because there was another disciple also named Judas. So it's not really giving you information about him. It's just telling you it's this Judas. It's not the other one. Don't blame the other one for what this one did. And Mark doesn't tell us what his motivations were. He says Judas Iscariot went to betray him. Luke tells you that the devil entered into Judas Iscariot, but Mark doesn't tell you that. Mark isn't really interested in his motivations per se. But he does tell you the reaction of the chief priests. He says they were glad and they promised to give him money. They were eager to spend to get rid of this particular problem named Jesus. And they jumped at the opportunity. These are the religious leaders of Israel. And they're glad for the opportunity to kill an innocent man. That shows you the depth of wickedness that is around here. It shows you the depth of wickedness that Judas is willing to betray Jesus. But the reaction, which is what Mark highlights, also shows you the depth of wickedness. And these are not just religious leaders conspiring, happy to get the chance to conspire to kill an innocent man. That's bad enough. But then add to it, the innocent man they want to kill is actually the savior, the deliverer, the promised one. They were supposed to be working for him. They were supposed to be getting things ready for him. And instead, they have rejected him. They've rejected him as decisively as you can. They've decided to kill him. So Judas understands that his plan is acceptable to them. And we'll see later on, Lord willing, that Judas will bring a multitude, an armed multitude, to arrest the Lord Jesus. He'll identify him in the darkness of the night, the confusion of the garden, by giving him a kiss. Now again, Mark doesn't choose to tell us what Judas' motives were, but he does highlight that even within Jesus' inner circle, there was someone who could not be trusted. There was someone who was a betrayer. There was somebody, you would think he's part of the inner circle. You would think he's on board with the program. You would think he believes, he knows the truth, but he does not. Physical proximity to Jesus, traveling with Jesus, being Jesus's treasurer, did not guarantee that Judas knew the truth. Well, then the disciples are concerned because it's the first day of unleavened bread. In other words, if Passover is going to start in the evening, of course, the lambs are going to be killed, but then they'll be eaten technically on Jewish reckoning the next day. And so they have to get everything ready. And he gives them a sign. He sends them into the city, probably from Bethany. And when they see a man carrying a water jar, they're going to follow him. And whatever house he goes into, that's the house where there's an upper room. There's a guest room where they can prepare all of the food for the Passover. Now, here again, there's different approaches. What is going on here? What do we understand by all of this? Some people think that the Lord Jesus had secretly made arrangements ahead of time. Now, I think there is some value to the observation that it was secret. By handling things this way, you know what Judas couldn't do? He couldn't tell the authorities where Jesus was in Jerusalem celebrating the Passover. I don't think Judas knew where this upper room was until he got there. And he got there in company with everybody else. So there, wasn't, there weren't guards waiting there to arrest them when they came in. And I think the Lord Jesus set things up that way because he wanted to have this time with his disciples. He wanted to prepare them for what was coming. He wanted to shepherd them through it preemptively so to speak. But when you start talking about, well, Jesus talked with this guy ahead of time and made secret arrangements, I don't think that's what Mark is getting at. I don't really think that's the point of the passage. I think what he's highlighting here is the knowledge that Jesus had. Jesus knew that there would be a man carrying a pitcher of water. Now, commentators tell us that was unusual. They said that jars of water were generally carried by women. If men were carrying water, they carried them in skins, not in jars. Take that for what it's worth. But presumably, it had to have been a little bit unusual or they might have bumped into 15 men who were carrying jars of water, right? So it had to stick out a little bit. I don't think that Jesus prearranged a signal I think this is emphasizing his knowledge of what is going to happen. Well, Jesus knows there will be a man carrying a jar of water. He knows that that man with a jar of water will go into a house. He knows that in that house, there's somebody who has an upper room available, and he knows that that upper room is his to ask for. That all he has to do is say, the teacher wants to use this room, and the issue is solved. Now, this does raise an interesting point of application for us. This is somewhere where we can pause a moment and see that the scripture remains relevant for us as well. Jesus had great confidence in whoever the owner of this house was. He would freely exercise hospitality. He would say, yes, my whole upstairs is yours to use. Does Jesus have that kind of confidence in us? Does he have reasons to have That kind of confidence in us is all that we have, all that we are, at his disposal. It ought to be, but sometimes we like to keep a little something for ourselves, don't we? Well, there's something we can learn from this otherwise completely unknown man. We don't know anything about him, except that he had an upper room and he let Jesus use it. But what a wonderful thing, isn't it? All the Lord Jesus had to do was let him know about the need. Would that we could all say that. Would that that would be true of all of us. When we're informed of the need, we rise to the challenge. We give what we can give. Now, obviously, there were limits to what this man could do, but he could put his upstairs at the disposal of Jesus and his disciples. But also notice this. Jesus didn't ask the man to do everything. He didn't say, you prepare your upper room. You make all the food for 13 people. Two of his disciples were put in charge of that. And presumably they had a budget. The Lord Jesus does ask us to serve him, but he's not unreasonable about it. The reason we can happily volunteer, well, one of the reasons we can happily volunteer everything we have to his disposal is because he is actually very kind and gracious. He does consider our need. He doesn't impose. He doesn't ask for too much. He remembers our frame. He knows that we are dust, and he does not make one person responsible for everything. There's a beautiful lesson there as well. It means we can trust the Lord Jesus. It also means, of course, that we can imitate him in that and not load everything on just one person, but distribute the load. Many hands make light work, as the saying goes. So the disciples got everything ready. Then in the evening, so according to Jewish reckoning, when the new day had just started, he came with the twelve. Presumably the two who had prepared came back and said, everything's ready, and showed everyone else where to go. They knew where to go because they'd followed the man with a jar of water. Well, now everybody goes. And they... Eat together. Now, as they were there sitting, or technically reclining and eating, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. Now, why is this brought up here? Well, in context, Mark wants us to know that none of this catches Jesus by surprise. He's been predicting his death for some time, he knows what's coming. And he goes through with it anyway. And we'll come back to that. But Mark thought this was important to highlight. Now you notice the effect of this on the disciples. They begin to be sorrowful and to say to him one by one, is it I, and another, is it I? There's a couple of observations to make about that. One is that the Lord Jesus said something that made His disciples sad. Well then, clearly, sometimes it's appropriate to say things that make people sad. We live in a society, we live in a culture where there's a lot of emphasis on being cheerful, on being upbeat. People say they want to go to church to feel good. I've heard that once in a while. And there's nothing wrong with cheerfulness. There's nothing wrong with joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And I absolutely think that you should mostly leave church encouraged and refreshed and cheerful. But this is the Lord Jesus. Are we really going to question his pastoral wisdom? Are we going to say that he put the emphasis in the wrong place? Are we going to criticize how Jesus shepherded his own disciples? I don't think so. I hope not. Well, then that does mean that there are times when even God's people, even the Lord's disciples, need to be made sad. You have it in Ecclesiastes, don't you? Sorrow is better than laughter, for by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. So there's a time and a place to be sad. We can bring that to church. We can encounter that at church. And you notice why they were sad. They were sad because of inadequate faithfulness to Christ, because somebody was going to fail in their loyalty to the Lord. This is a reason for sorrow, isn't it? We've experienced this in our church. We've experienced this in our families. We've experienced this in our broader circles. When somebody... Turns away from the Lord, whether that means that they abandon the church and just stop going anywhere, whether it means that they go to a false or an apostate church, whether it means that they're put under discipline or even that they embrace a completely different religion. Is that not a reason to be sad? Of course it is. That's a tragedy. That's a disaster. It's strong reason to lament and mourn and weep. It's very legitimate to be sad about that. But you also notice that the disciples, they were sad and that was appropriate. And their other response was also appropriate. They said, is it I? Or it's not me, is it? You see, they weren't arrogant at this point. They didn't presume it couldn't possibly be them. They all asked, is it I? We find out from the other gospels that even Judas asked that, although I think he already knew the answer to the question. There is a place for humility. Now, later on, the disciples are going to affirm very strongly that they'll never deny Jesus. And yet, what's going to wind up happening? They're going to deny Jesus. So here is something we can legitimately lament. Here's something we can properly mourn. We are not more loyal to Jesus than we are. We are not as loyal as we ought to be. But there's also a good lesson to learn here, and that is, our loyalty to Jesus does not arise from the strength of our resolution. It's not us being determined and firm in our own strength. They tried that and they failed. But when we're strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, then we can be loyal all the way to the end. So if you hear these words, if you hear the disciples asking it I?" and think, well, I would never ask that. I know better than that. You might be closer to the state of mind of the disciples in a few verses than you realize. Paul said it to the Corinthians, let the one who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We're never in more danger than when we're overconfident. Now, you can't be too confident in Jesus, but it's very easy to be too confident in yourself. So it's a fair question to ask. Is it I? Will I be loyal to the end? By God's grace, yes. But if I'm not depending on God's grace, then either I won't be loyal to the end or I will have to learn a bitter lesson the way Peter did, that we cannot be loyal to Jesus in our own strength. Now, in Mark, all he says is, it's somebody who dips with me in the dish. And that's an allusion, I think, to Psalm 41, where my own familiar friend who broke bread with me has turned against me. The Lord Jesus had not treated Judas differently from the others. He hadn't discriminated against him. He hadn't given him any reason for what he did. He had shared with Judas. He's sharing this meal with Judas right now. And yet Judas lifted up his heel against him. Judas betrayed him. Now, the Lord Jesus does give a warning he says, the Son of Man indeed goes, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. Now, sometimes people tie themselves in knots with that last statement. It's really not that complicated. Why would it have been good for Judas never to have been born? Well, it would have been better from Judas's point of view. Judas was part of God's plan. God didn't make a mistake. Jesus is not saying, oh, I wish my father hadn't created this individual. But he's saying from his point of view, in terms of what is going to happen to him, he would have been better off not existing than existing and behaving in this way and receiving the appropriate punishment that will come as a result. Now, on the one hand, this is something that is special to Judas, He was at a unique place in the history of redemption, and he was able to betray Jesus in a way that is fairly unique. However, if you remember our series on Ecclesiastes, Solomon comes to the conclusion that, in general, those who were stillborn, those who never saw the sun at all, are better off than those who just have to lead a vain life under the sun. Apart from trust in Jesus, what we could say about Judas can be applied in its own degree to everybody. From your point of view, if you do not believe, if you are condemned, if you go to hell, you would have preferred never to have existed than that. Now, I'm not saying that that's absolutely true in terms of God's creation and God's purpose, but I'm saying from your point of view, that's how you're going to feel about that. You would be better off not existing than existing and not believing in Jesus. Well, take a moment to absorb that. Take a moment to reflect on that. Every gift of existence will not count against the condemnation of those who do not believe. Nothing will offset that from inside your own experience. Now, we say this not because we're particularly hateful, but we say this as a warning. Imagine if Judas had heeded this warning. Imagine if Judas had changed his mind, even out of an instinct of self-preservation, and had not betrayed Jesus. Well, he didn't pay any attention to the warning. But you can. We can draw back. From condemnation. We can look to the Lord to save us. But the bigger point that I think Mark is making here is what you have in the beginning of verse 21. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. Now, Jesus doesn't give any specific passages in the Old Testament that he's thinking of. And I think the reason he doesn't is that there are many passages. There's Psalm 22. There's Psalm 41 that we mentioned a moment ago. There's Psalm 31. There's Psalm 69. There's the Psalms also of victory of triumph, like Psalm 2 or Psalm 118 or Psalm 110. There's the servant of the Lord's songs in the book of Isaiah. There's even the prediction about what amount of money they'll give Judas for him in the book of Zechariah. In other words, he doesn't reference one passage because he has a multitude of passages in mind. And what does all of that tell you? Well, it tells you that Judas got ready to betray him, tells you that the disciples got ready to eat the Passover, but it tells you that God was getting ready to accomplish his purpose through the Son of Man. You know what that purpose was. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Those who were involved in his betrayal and his crucifixion, they are guilty. Judas is guilty for what he did. He's not excused. He's not let off the hook. Woe to that man. But in their wickedness, God is overruling to accomplish his purpose of grace, to bring salvation to these disciples. These disciples who, on the one hand, you see a little bit of their good qualities here. They ask about preparing the Passover. They follow his instructions. They're humble. They want to know if they're the ones who will betray him. But you also see their weaknesses and their limitations all around throughout Mark He keeps emphasizing how they didn't understand, how they didn't get it. He shows you their weakness and their failure. And the Lord Jesus came for them, for people just like them. Here he is. He's about to go through the great crisis of his life. And whom is he serving? He's serving his disciples. He's sharing the table with them. He's extending grace to them. Did they earn their place at that table? No, they didn't. Did they deserve to be there? No, they did not. And yet the Lord Jesus held out grace to them again and again. What about you? You're here this morning. We're about to observe the Lord's table. Do you deserve to be there? Have you earned your place at this table? No, you have not. Neither have I. I'm unworthy to administer the table to you. I'm unworthy to be a partaker myself. But you know what? The Lord Jesus invites us anyway. He shares with us because it's not a question of performance. It's a question of grace. If you believe in Jesus, then all the grace, all the patience, all the long-suffering, all the service is there for you. Amen.